Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I'm excited that we're finishing another epic today. For being half as many books as Homer, the Aeneid still feels really long at times. Today we have book 12 and we'll also look back at the epic as a whole. I'm still working from the Fitzgerald translation because that's what I already owned when we started this whole thing. In book 11 we saw some funerals and then we met Camilla. Her real purpose as far as the plot is concerned is rising tension, keeping the final fight between Turnus and Aeneas from happening too soon. But now that we're to book 12, we know that fight is going to come, so let's dive right in. At the end of book 11, the tide had turned against the Latins, and Turnus decided that it's time to take matters fully into his own hands. He marches up to Latinus and declares that he's going to fight Aeneas himself, and once he wins, he's going to marry Lavinia, whose opinion in this matter we still have yet to hear. Latinus Latinus commends Turnus for his bravery, but he doesn't think this is a good idea. I mean, Turnus is already heir to an entire kingdom. Isn't that enough? Think of his poor father. Besides, Latinus had never really been for a marriage between Lavinia and Turnus in the first place. He only consented to it to please his wife, Amata. Remember that? Seems like ages ago that we talked about how Amata was pro-Turnus and Latinus was pro-Aeneas. Anyway, Turnus is unswayed by Latinus's arguments. He is going to fight Aeneas. Amata is devastated by the thought that Turnus might lose. She'd sooner die than see her daughter married to Aeneas. Lavinia doesn't say anything, but she does cry at this. Turnus puts his foot down. Everyone is to lay down their weapons. He and Aeneas will fight, and Lavinia will be the prize. But it's getting late, so they wait until morning. Morning comes, and everyone marches out to watch the duel. Everyone including Juno, and she doesn't like what she sees. So she goes to Juturna, who you'll recall is Turnus's sister. She's also a water nymph. Surprise! So turns out Turnus has an immortal sister. Don't ask. Or maybe do ask. Just don't ask me. Juno urges Juturna to do something about the pending fight. She could get Turnus to stop fighting, or she could get everyone else to start fighting, just as long as she does something to prevent Turnus from his inevitable fate. Oh, um, 2,000-year-old spoiler alert? Meanwhile, the combatants enter in a rather grand procession. Sacrifices are made, prayers are intoned, libations are poured, and frankly, this is not a fair fight, and everyone knows it. I mean, we have the son of Venus on one side. Uh, But we do have Juturna on the other side, and she sees her chance to, at the very least, stir up trouble. And stir up trouble she does. She disguises herself as a soldier named Camaris and goes around warning the Rutulians that if they don't fight, they're going to lose. And if they lose, well, you just can't trust what the Trojans will do to those they defeat. I mean, really, do they... They do have this history of losing, so there's no precedent of them treating captives well because they've never really had any because they've always been the captives. But but I digress. Juturna's words have the desired effect, and Tolumnius casts the first spear. 
So much for the duel. Latinus runs away and all hell breaks loose. And what you really need to know is that someone manages to hit Aeneas. Who? Who knows? No one takes credit, which is weird because you'd think that person would want to boast about it. Anyway, it's all okay because the Trojan healer, Iapix, fixes Aeneas up with a little help from Venus, naturally. And then, of course, Aeneas puts his armor back on, and we get the only time in this entire epic that Aeneas directly addresses his son. They've been traveling for years now, and we have never seen Aeneas talk to Ascanius. But now he does. Aeneas tells Ascanius to buck up and learn from his father's example, and and from his uncle Hector's, too. Oh, Hector. Okay, this is not the Iliad, so no more swooning over Hector. Aeneas returns to the fray, and there's some more stalling on Juturna's part, and there's a bit of an Aristia on Aeneas' part, which you should have seen coming, what with the description of him putting on his armor and all. But eventually, we get to what we all came for several thousand lines ago. Oh, and Amata goes ahead and kills herself before waiting to see who wins. <laughs> Foreshadowing much? But like I was saying, we eventually get to the duel between Aeneas and Turnus, and when I talk about this being the Iliad, well, this is where Virgil directly quotes the Iliad, so I'm not making this up. And, and, we pop up to Olympus for a bit. I mean, we can't forget that the gods are watching this whole thing. Jupiter asks Juno what's going to be left when this is all over. They both know who's going to win, but what will that victory look like? Juno sighs and agrees to stop the stalling on one condition. The Trojans are to become Latin, not the other way around. Jupiter's cool with that. He sends Megira, another one of the Furies, as an omen to convince Juturna to stop interfering. Megira comes in the form of a bird, but Juturna, being immortal herself, recognizes her. Juturna mourns that her immortality will prevent her from going with her brother to the underworld. It's really very sweet. And finally, for real this time, Aeneas and Turnus face each other, and they taunt each other, and they fight, and Aeneas gets the upper hand. And Turnus, in that traditional suppliant position, on his knees, reaching up to Aeneas's beard, begs for mercy. And Aeneas pauses. Maybe he's remembering that way back in book six, he was told to spare the conquered. But then he sees that Turnus is wearing Pallas's belt. And Aeneas remembers how Turnus killed Pallas. He calls him a hypocrite for expecting mercy when he showed no such mercy to Pallas. And with that, Aeneas runs Turnus through and Turnus's spirit flies to the underworld. And that is the end of the Aeneid. We finished the Aeneid. We'll come back to Virgil when I get around to covering Roman poetry. We still have the whole eclogues to do, but those are short form. The, the Romans are more recent than the Greeks, so we have a lot more of each individual writer that has survived the ages. So we'll see the same thing with some of our other epic poets. We have Ovid coming up. They wrote long things and they wrote short things. Epics are the long things. 
trying to decide exactly how to do poetry. I'm thinking that I'll I'll want to use public domain translations so that I can just read the poetry to you. But that's not for a while. We we still have a lot of epics left to cover. Anyway, about this book of the Aeneid. The key takeaway from this book is that this explains why there are no signs of these Trojan ancestors in ancient Rome. Juno bargained for them to become Latins, so even though the Trojans win the war, they behave ultimately as though they were the ones who were conquered. And that's interesting to note, given how the epic ends. As I noted in my summary, in Book 6, Aeneas is told to spare the conquered, but he doesn't. Now, of course, we all know that Turnus is going to die. We all know that the Trojans are going to win the war. But the ending that we see, well, it's just not very Roman, or at least how the Romans perceived themselves. But Juno's plan to have the Trojans become Latins, I mean, that's totally Roman. I mean, think about Virgil's own life. When he was born, he was not a citizen of Rome because of where he was born. That region was not yet considered territory that could grant citizenship. But by the time he died, that land was fully part of the Roman Empire and people born there, by people I mean, of course, men with property, blah, 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 they were citizens. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I get to the epic as a whole, I want to talk about Juturna and Turnus. They have an interesting relationship. I mean, I have a brother. I love him. I don't know if I love him quite the same way Juturna seems to love Turnus, but they, they, are very, they seem to be very close. So maybe they're, I, I don't know. Sometimes it feels a little weird. And no, yes, I know. I could go and delve into the scholarly literature to learn more <laughs> about them, see what people have said. I haven't done that yet. Maybe someday I will. Maybe someday this podcast will start focusing on specific characters in Greek and Roman myth, um, at which point I will do that. So I do not know how it came to be that a nymph named Juturna and a prince named Turnus are siblings. But it is interesting that as we get into book 12, it's no longer Juno who is keeping Turnus and Aeneas apart. It's Juturna. Juno's motivations have been primarily that she and Venus don't like each other, so Juno is messing with Venus's son. And when you remember that marriage was not a romantic thing until very recently in human history, it makes sense that Juno, the goddess of marriage, and Venus, the goddess of love, don't get along. But Juturna's motivations? This is where English is problematic. Love, we have one word for love. But if we think of, you know, Philadelphia, it's the city of brotherly love, philia. It's that that love that, that she has towards her brother, not, not eros, not romantic love. She's trying to protect her brother. She knows that as long as she can keep Turnus from Aeneas, her brother will still be alive. And where it's heartbreaking is that she knows that as soon as he dies, she will never be able to see him again because he will be in the one place that she, as an immortal nymph, can never go. And this feels like a change from the Juturna we see earlier in the epic. This revelation that she is immortal adds depth to her character in her actions. And because of her, 
the death of Turnus seems even more brutal than it would be simply because of how he dies while begging for mercy. So those are my thoughts on book 12. We'll take a short break before looking at the Aeneid as a whole. In the most timely of happenstance, I was listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, and I apologized to the scholar who was being interviewed because I wasn't paying close enough attention to note her name, and I don't know which episode it was, although it must have dropped sometime in September or October of 2021 because that's about where I am in my backlog of podcasts. Anyway, on this episode, she was talking about fan fiction. And if fan fiction retells an older story or picks a minor character to focus on, then maybe I've been looking at the Aeneid wrong all these years. It's not plagiarism. It's fan fiction. Really, really old fan fiction, like the great, great, great granddaddy of fan fiction. I mean, think about it. It's a retelling of an older story, the Trojan War, and it picks a minor character from the Iliad to focus on. So Virgil, I apologize for calling you a plagiarist all these years. But despite the fan fiction that the Aeneid is, it is its own thing. And there are two ways we can look at it and what it has to say about humanity and the Roman Empire. One view is that this is complete and total propaganda. Romans wanted desperately to be seen as Greeks only better. The patricians hired Greek tutors for their sons. They copied Greek statues. (laughs) How can you tell a Greek, the Greek statue from the Roman? The Roman, the, the Greek statues are perfectly balanced. They they can like stand on their own like a human being. The Roman ones like they need to lean on a sculpted log or something. They 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 are not perfectly balanced. The, the Romans loved ancient Greece. So an epic that tells a story about how they're descended from the people of that world. This is glorious right? Or is it? Remember when Aeneas goes to the underworld? He leaves through the door of false dreams. So is everything as glorious as it might seem at face value? And that ending, Aeneas is told to spare the conquered, but he doesn't. So is this Roman virtue of negotiation and the whole Pax Romana thing, is that really true? And it is interesting to note that these two details occur at the end of their respective sections. So you remember this epic has six books that are kind of the Odyssey that focus on Aeneas's voyage to Italy and six books that are the Iliad focusing on the war and his defeat of the Latins. Each ends with something that questions the notion that this epic is purely propaganda. And you'll note that the epic just stops. It feels like you should be able to turn the page and have some sort of conclusion, a funeral, something. But no, that's the end. Virgil died. Maybe he intended it to end there and just wanted to do some editing in the earlier sections. Uh, Maybe he had intended it to be a full 24 books, just like Homer's epics. The big theme that carries through is that of free will. 
The gods regularly interfere, so how much control does Aeneas have over the course his life takes? Would it have been different if... It, it's hard to say whether whether Aeneas... Sorry, whether Virgil had, had lived, if what changes he might have made, how it would have been different. But with Aeneas, we see that he he regularly, he piously does whatever the oracle tells him to do. So he's making the choice. He's making a choice. But given how meddlesome the gods are, would things have turned out any differently if he hadn't gone with what the oracle says he should do? And what does all of this have to say about us today, about how we view our own empires, how we view our faith, how we how we view free will, how much free will do we have? The one thing I know for certain is that this epic led to the best episode of Wishbone ever. And yes, I have found it on YouTube. And yes, you can go to the blog and watch it. When I read the Aeneid and read about Juno interfering with Aeneas's voyage, this is what I picture. It's delightful. So what do you think of the Aeneid? Who's your favorite character? Why? What questions does it leave you with? Pop over to the blog and share, either before or after you watch Wishbone. <laughs> the blog is at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Find me on Patreon as Triumvirclio should you feel so inclined. No pressure. In the next episode, we'll cover Book 3, Chapter 4 of the Biblioteca. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.